Morning, Apricot. Good morning, Endo. How are we? Yeah, well, very well, in fact. That's good. Morning, Ardeet. How are you going? I'm going very well, Apricot. I'm uh, looking after the neighbours' chooks at the moment, so I'm getting fresh eggs for breakfast and had a couple of them poached this morning, so I'm a, a happy chappy. What about you? If I'm to be frank, I'm honestly kind of exhausted, but um, <laughs> other than that, pretty good. More late night spreadsheets? Uh, sort of. I'm doing everyone's favorite, uh, everyone's favorite activity, uh, a uh, data audit, because you know I, we need to make sure that our systems are up to date for us. So yeah, oh, tremendous. <laughs> mm. Oh, good, good, good on you, good on you. Somebody's got to do these. Uh, things and uh unless somebody does things just fall apart indeed well we might just jump into it i think uh it's been a pretty i wouldn't say exciting week uh it certainly hasn't been boring so for our first topic i might just want to touch on the northwest central by-election um because that happened yesterday for those who aren't aware up in wa uh, and it was interesting, really, because the Labor Party weren't actually contesting the by-election this time, despite recording 40% of the vote there in the last state election. Um, they gave it a miss, and they really tried to justify it when they were announcing they weren't contesting it. You know, uh, they read for about, like, two minutes or so off a sheet of, like, regional investments the government has done to be like, no, 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 we do, we do care about regional people. We're just not contesting this by-election. Um, Forty percent seems a, a lot of lot of uh, support to leave on the table. You, you said forty four zero, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had about forty percent last time. Hmm. So yeah, uh, the results or the preliminary results at least are in uh, with the Nationals retaining the seat uh, with their vote relatively unchanged, a point five percent swing in their favour. Uh, the Liberals recorded eighteen point eight percent swing so they seem to have taken most of the alp support or the alp supports shifted to the nationals but then some from the nats have gone to the liberals um with the greens recording an 8.5 percent swing taking their total up to 12 percent um there was a smuttering of uh the legalized cannabis party the western australia party managed to take advantage of a lack of legislation and run two candidates um oh. Yeah. Other than that, uh, I think what really sums up this by-election was uh, a little note that Anthony Green had left on his results page where he was like, I have prior commitments, uh, tickets to the footy, so I won't actually be updating these results until like an hour and a half after polls close. Sorry about that. Oh, Anthony Green said that? <laughs> yes, he did. Ha! Huh. Now, now tell me, you you uh, you understand a lot of the, uh, the the machinations of these things. Why is it with forty percent that uh, Labor wouldn't have been trying to do deals with uh, preferences? Because as I understood it, there was something like twelve uh, parties standing for this this by election. What? Why do you think Labor would not be doing that? Do you think? Well, I'll, I'll, that's the question. It would mainly be optics, in my view. Um, By-elections don't tend to favour government, like incumbent governments. People use them as an opportunity to say, hey, you're doing wrong things and we don't like that. Um, so, 
Yeah, really, really mainly optics. Um, it's also not like they really need the seat. I forget exactly what the majority of the McGowan government has in WA. Um, but I did hear an interesting anecdote that they can't actually meet in their official party room anymore because the party's so large it doesn't fit in party rooms. Oh. So instead they meet in, like, the communal dining hall of parliament. Well, there's, what, six Liberal National MPs. If the Liberals had won this seat, it would have tipped the balance to, to 50-50 Lib Nats in the enormous WA opposition. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of almost wish I had seen that just to see that dynamic play out of like, oh, Nationals and Liberals both have three seats. Who's going to become the official opposition leader of the train wreck? Um, I don't know how many people are clamoring to be that conductor, but... Huh. <laughs> Do you guys have any thoughts? Oh, no, look, you, to, to be honest, when you have uh, talked about the, the elections like this and by-elections, I've mainly been happy to to listen to you. My my only thoughts were what I brought up about the, the 40%. You, well, as soon as you said that, it sort of changed my thinking. But look, to be, to be perfectly honest, it doesn't have a direct impact on me and my understanding of Western Australia politics was that Labor at the moment are, are firmly entrenched, so I think it's probably a funny comment by Anthony Green. Although it's a, it's an interesting comment for him to make, uh, given its flippancy. Definitely. Well, quick topic's a good topic. We might move on to our next one. Yep. Um. <clears throat> so the Opal Card Rail Strike in New South Wales. Um, I don't know about you guys. Uh, I know, Ender, you might actually have a bit more context than I do. I hadn't heard much about it being in Victoria until the rail union has threatened to actually turn off uh, the Opal card readers, which, for those listening in, are the similar Mikey card readers for New South Wales. Um, they backed down on that. Take... I think they've, oh, they've, they've actually... They've... Yeah, the, the union's backed down on that now. Really? Yeah. I'm just checking. I hadn't seen anything. Um, do you, do you want to give us maybe a little bit of, um, just a little bit of insight into the current friction between the government and the rail union? Because this has apparently been going on since February where the rail unions raised concerns over safety and, oh, you know, yeah. they're all threatening to drag each other to the Fair Work Commission. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it probably even goes back longer than that, right? Uh, in 2019, the government bought a fleet of new trains. Um, the problem with those trains is they don't carry guards on them. And so the union and the government have been locked in this battle about what to do with them because obviously the union wants those 430-odd jobs that would that would go if the train didn't have a guard on there. The government doesn't want to pay for those. The union have raised safety concerns, um, some of which have had doubt cast on on how accurate they are. And so it's a bit of a, a sort of an impasse between the union and the, and the government with none really seeming to want to back down. Um, Perrottet had had a couple of moments where he looked like he might actually be having a clear thought about it and he asked, was the cost of mothballing the uh, the trains worth it relative to sitting down with the unions and doing a deal? But they, they just can't seem to, I think, find common ground and there's a sense that, that none of them are really in, acting in particularly good faith. But um, Perrottet had threatened to tear up the, um, the award that was being discussed now and go to the Fair Work Commission. And if you can't agree on an award in, in good faith and the commission can set one for you, but... The problem with those is they do tend to be a bit more favourable to the employer the way they're, they're set up. Um, so the union sort of backed down a little bit on that, has, but has come back and said, if we don't get the, the paying conditions and guarantees we want, we'll 
stop the Opal card readers from being activated. Now, as I understand it, the Opal card readers are run by a outsourced company. So if the money isn't going through the Opal card, the government's still liable for the loss of revenue that that would cause. So the Transport Minister in New South Wales threatened to um, dismiss anyone who was involved in turning the readers off, and I think that's that's been wow. taken as a serious enough threat for them to to take it seriously and, and back down a little bit on it. Um, but uh, the, the problem is I can't see a point at which either side can negotiate on this without losing a significant amount of face, and they've done it so publicly that it is a public contest now. It is It is all about a little bit about ego and... Um, it'd be humiliating defeat for whomever doesn't get their way in this, which is the worst place for the people of the state to be in, because, or the, of Sydney to be in, because um, you know we sort of rely on public transport to get to work, and these sorts of games, I think, over time, will will probably end up costing both parties a lot of um, goodwill from the from the people. So, um, in summary, a bit of a shit fight. I think that's the technical term for it. Um, a shit fight in a kettle. Exactly, exactly. So, and, and I, I mean, I sort of have sympathies with both parties on this, but by the same token, I kind of feel like just get it done right, just figure something out. Because every time you don't, you know, you're putting, especially when we've had a pandemic and you've got crowded trains because of cancellations. No one's, no one's benefiting from that. You know, no one's, no one's well off from it. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, Apricot, I can't see a, a point at which either side can can sort of put hurt feelings and mistrust to one side and um, compromise. Yeah, it seems like the saving of face is a big issue and it often is on these types of um, industrial action or threatened industrial action, particularly when each side, you know, believes they're playing hardball. It gets to the point that... Uh, it gets to the point that in the end it's the it's it tends to be the the person on the street who's who's inconvenienced the most look i i thought this threat and i didn't realize i like apricot i thought i had done a check this morning and i didn't see that the union could be had, wrong but i thought i'd seen they had back down let me double check that right okay I, I, while you're, you're checking that what i was going to say is uh to me it seems like uh I thought the threatening of the Opal card shutdown was actually a great play by the unions. I thought they were getting good mileage from it without actually uh, doing it. I think it's an interesting way to put uh, direct pressure on the government rather than a large series of rolling strikes that inconvenience commuters and and lose them support. So, and, and to be honest, I'm experiencing a little bit of schadenfreude at an electronic system being turned against its creator. I do sort of enjoy, and that's that's going to tie into uh into our final final topic as well. But yeah, there's part of me that thinks, well, whoever came up with the idea is saying, let's let's hit them in the hip pocket. There, I think that was a particularly good move. <laughs> I I agree. And look, just how many? Because Ender, I haven't, um, I haven't been keeping up on the detail of that. How many uh, cancellations have there there been during this action? As as a rough rough idea, I wouldn't have a rough number, but I mean, the last week or two, there haven't been any before that. It was enough that people were, um, <clears throat> you know, for the offices where people were doing a couple of days a week in in face to face, they were an hour or more late. I had. Um, 
I caught up with some some old colleagues who live out Campbelltown way. So for people who don't know, that's probably an hour or so out of Sydney by train, or oh, 45 minutes by train. They were taking them three or four hours to get home and they were leaving sort of nine o'clock at night to try and avoid the queues and still getting um, impacted like that. So they didn't do a full shutdown. They just did minimal services and, and cancellations of existing services. Um, which I think that to your point earlier about the the kind of leveraging them in the hip pocket with the oval cards versus the shutdowns. The shutdowns, I think, are a really good way to get the public offside against your cause. And I think that's yep. possibly why they've shifted the gears on that one because they started to feel the heat that sympathy very quickly evaporates when other people are impacted by industrial action. Look, it does. And the same the same implies with, with protesting as well. We've seen that with... Um... Uh, what was what was the name of the people super gluing themselves? Climate, oh, like extinction rebellion, those types. Thank you, extinction rebellion. Yeah, I, I feel like when you get to that that point where you have people being prevented from from going about their, you know, essentially their freedom of movement, I think it's natural for them to to push back against it. Uh, so give it, give us your speculation. What do you what do you think is going to happen with this? I think the government's going to have to agree to retain those guard roles. Um, we've seen similar strikes in the past. There was a, a massive one in London in 2013, I want to say. Because um, I remember that because it happened when I was there. But the um, Transport for London was, was proposing to remove a bunch of redundant station hand roles and the union shut the entire city down. And so <clears throat> the, the response to that was, well, you know, we'll give in for a while. It's, it's not worth the hassle. I suspect that the... Um, safety argument will be seen to win out, but it's really about keeping a number of jobs in place that um, would otherwise be automated. And um, what the the long term plans for the government are, I don't know, but I think they're going to have to agree to keep the guard jobs with some sort of concession there about um, more um, more automation over time or something. I don't know. Yeah, look, it'll be interesting interesting to see because oh. Just, just... A little bit of beard action there, Ender. No, no, um, I'm, not sure. I think, I'm not sure what uh, that is. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see the actual result of this because my uh, recollection of how <clears throat> of how these things go his, go historically is uh, you'll have something like the transport unions uh, getting the pay rises and getting these protections. And I think there's always the danger in the government's mind of uh, that getting some momentum and moving to other sectors. You know, health typically be tends to be a related one to, to follow transport like they're, they're often in lockstep. And even though there's been a you know, reduction in, in unions' powers and you know, more formalisation of processes, at the end of the day, if people are willing to put their feet on the ground, uh, there's not a lot that the government can do about it. So I, I imagine government's going to tread carefully on this. I'll be surprised if they uh, I'll be surprised if they give too much because they don't want to signal that they're an easy pushover. I one thing that I'm a bit curious about, and I'm hoping you can answer for me, Ender. Um, New South Wales will be having an election in, I believe, March next year. You know, uh, both parties are starting to go into the unofficial campaign mode. You know, uh, the quiet before the storm. What? support if any is the new south wales labor party giving to this action or are they kind of just going like no we're going to sit this one out because obviously if that should they win government 
and this dispute is ongoing, they they will then inherit this dispute, wouldn't they? Yeah, they they will. And I mean, the long and short answer of it is, you'd never see the Labor Party's name associated with this. It, it's it's entirely about the government and the unions talking to and at one another. Labor has kept itself at arm's length. So whether that's tactical or Chris Minns is distracted by bigger problems like phones and schools, I don't know. But he's definitely <laughs> not visible in this debate. Oh dear. At some point I do want to have a um little bit of a special maybe on Chris Minns and his leadership so far. Um mainly because I think it's quite uh different, you would say, to most Labour premiers, I would say, at this point. Well, he hasn't been overtly racist or allegedly sexually assaulted an ABC reporter, so he does have that going for him compared to his predecessors. Oh, God, New South <laughs> Wales is such a dumpster fire, Jesus Christ. It really is. <laughs> oh dear well on that we may move to another topic uh which is that the ombudsman finds law enforcement has acted illegally in terms of uh surveilling citizens without authority adit did you want to speak on this oh yes (laughs) 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 given my uh my joy of government there was a 17th of september the the saturday paper had an article titled pretty creepy agencies illegally obtained emails voicemails and texts and that was by karen uh middleton and just uh as as a primer for this topic Uh, A report by the Ombudsman has found police and integrity agencies routinely break the... I'll do it without emphasis. Integrity agencies routinely break the law in handling private data and are getting worse rather than better. Examining the 2019 to 20 records of 19 agencies, the Ombudsman levels criticisms at all of them. They include obtaining invalid warrants, failing to keep records, having inadequate storage and destruction arrangements, and accessing the communications of victims and serious crime without consent and without evidence of having tried to obtain it. Now, to, to paraphrase Lysander Spooner, the framework that was put in place has either failed to stop this abuse by police and integrity agencies, or it has enabled it. It... It blows me away because this is something that was easily foreseeable. It was loudly shouted, shouted from the ramparts each time that Labor and the coalition increased the surveillance state. This should surprise nobody. Laws are seldom put in place to benefit the people at the expense or discomfort of uh, of bureaucrats. I, I'm, I'm looking at what they've got down in... And look, there is. Uh, I'll get onto this now. <laughs> Further in the article, I had in response to the findings, former independent national security uh, legislation monitor and Australia's first in the role, Brett Walker, SC, says that if law enforcement agencies can't meet the standards required to exercise such drastic powers, then the power should be withdrawn. He finds Victoria Police and Tasmania Police obtained people's data using invalid warrants despite warnings. You've got this, and I'm thinking, how about arresting and charging those who have broken the law rather than just threatening to take away their toys and send them to the the naughty corner? When we're talking about things like like this and the ICAP and people are talking about what's been put in place to uh, 
you know, ensure that corruption doesn't happen, to ensure that uh, powers aren't abused. And we get this time after time. I just find it difficult to understand how they continue to get away with it and the apathy of uh, people in general. But look, that's a bit of a rant. I'd like to hear what the two of you think, because this just, this blows my, blows my head. Well, I unfortunately have been head deep in data for at least three days now. Um, so I actually haven't read that piece, but I will read it after this, I think. I will say I have been concerned myself um, about the increasing like privacy laws that have been enacted by this country. It seems almost like at the end of every year, just before Christmas, some new piece of legislation is rushed through. Um, I do recall Scott Ludlam was, you know, fighting a good fight on that quite often. Um, And unfortunately, it seems to really kind of have fallen off the public radar um, since then. So, yeah, I I am maybe a bit inherently suspicious um, of things like this. And when, when I hear things like police enacting warrants like that aren't, actually legitimate it's like what is going on here this is clearly a critical failure at that point isn't it oh critical failure is is exactly correct look you know i'm no fan of of government and i can understand in a large organization you might have somebody's forgotten to fill out some form in triplicate and put something in but when it comes down to actually breaking the law Breaking the guidelines and understanding that you're, uh, you're you're breaking it. You don't you don't if you're a, a police officer or security person, you don't have to know the letter of the law to know that if you're doing something dodgy with getting your warrant, that it's going to be against the rules. So uh, it's 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 flagrant in my opinion. Um, and Ender, you're a big fan of, of of government and and what they do. What's your opinion? What's your opinion on it? Well, I, so I think the first thing to probably call out is that the Privacy Act 1988 doesn't apply to government agencies. So the reason these are all framed as recommendations around framework and strengthening data protections is that the main operative law in Australia is ex- um, government bodies are exempted from it. So I have to comply with the Privacy Act every day, and I have to know the Privacy Act very oh. well. Government agencies don't and so just the simple things here around data verification um there's a principle in the privacy act about unsolicited information so if you come into contact with information that you haven't specifically requested the parameters of some sort of engagement with a person so a warrant wouldn't you know fall into that parameter you have to assess whether you have a legal entitlement to keep that record um, because it relates to the primary purpose of your engagement with a person or it doesn't, you've got to destroy the record um, irretrievably. So these principles are all really good ideas that it's not applied to agencies. And to, to Apricot's point, we're about to see next year a massive overhaul of the Privacy Act, and it's likely to align privacy regulation more closely with the EU and their fairly famous GDPR or um, General Data Protection Regulation. That needs to then also be applied to government agencies because he's right. Every year we have new security legislation because of the exemption to privacy laws. The security legislation can go further and further into intrusion. The reason I think people are apathetic is 
there's no limit to the willingness that people are willing to trade the illusion of security for the illusion of um, freedom or, or whatever else you want to call it. So mm. If the law creates the remote possibility that a single negative event like a terrorist attack or whatever could be prevented, that's usually enough for most people to go, eh, don't care anymore. They probably should care because it's it's only by luck that something hasn't happened now where a form of systemic abuse has occurred where the information has been used to prosecute the wrong person to a point where we can't bring it back. And I'm sort of thinking of the US broadly here with, you know, someone on, on, a, on a death row type conviction where it emerges after they were executed, that they were innocent. It's too late to put the genie back in the bottle at that point. And this report is a good signal that we need to start seriously thinking about consistency of data management, of, of the right that every individual has to privacy, irrespective of whether it's from a company that would use that information to sell you a product or a service or a government agency that would use that to monitor whether you're a threat. Um, the inevitable argument against that is that when you're looking at sub-state actors, when you're looking at people um, working on behalf of governments in Russia and China, they don't have any such constraint. But I'm reasonably sure we managed to get through most of a Cold War with Russia without having to completely compromise the principles oh. that we were standing behind. So I don't fully accept that that argument means that we have to roll over as citizens and submit entirely. No, and look, the the, the problem for me, and this is this is part of the re this is a, a big reason for why uh, it gets to me so much is the rot of this this modern surveillance state in Australia started in in 1940, 1985. That was four years before nine eleven, when when the Berlin Wall came down, using Australian dates, with Hawke and Keating's attempted introduction of the Australia Card. That was the first, I know they didn't get it through, but there was arguably twists on that theme with uh, Medicare numbers and that. But that was when it started. That was the first milestone on this bloody twisted road of government's betrayal of the Australian people. That's, you know, we're talking 35 years. And every time we get a report like this, uh, people just seem to... So long as they get their sizzling sausage and a couple of glittery things, it doesn't seem to bother them. And I don't look. I, I do. I do. I you know, write letters, talk about this thing, try and uh, protest in in other ways. Uh, yeah, maybe I suppose we can all all do more. But it absolutely boggles me how many people I will talk with in my you know, family and circle of acquaintances who have the oh, well, you've got to trust them, or, oh, well, there's not much you can do about it, attitude. And I'm thinking, you, you only have to step back just a little way and look at what has gone on in the last 35 years to understand it's not going to stop, it's going to get worse. Well, if I can pick up on a thread that you started pulling out there, Ardeet, <clears throat> the Australia card... And the pushback on that was what led to the single most protected piece of data you as a person owns is your tax file number. A misuse of tax file numbers can lead to, to jail time. But you can't use a TFN for anything except working out whether you have unclaimed super. So the pushback was so strong from the people on the Australia card that mm. the TFN got protections under the Privacy Act, under the um, Income Tax Assessment Act, the Tax Admin Act, all of these statutory provisions to protect a completely useless string of, um, what, nine digits. So yep. there is precedent for people saying, no, we don't want this. We just aren't doing it right now. Oh, look, that's that's true. I, I, 
I suppose is uh, that is the reality. There are there are a number of people pushed back against it. Um, that was you're quite right that there was a pushback against that. But this is how government frequently works. They'll they'll test the water. They'll have a they'll have, they'll put something out there. It'll get knocked on the head. So they'll rework it. They'll put something, and then it's waiting there in the wings uh, until there's a crisis. Uh, you know, probably the 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 biggest crisis was the uh, the American nine eleven, where suddenly everything was open slather. There was a war on terror declared, and suddenly rights and freedoms had to be sacrificed because you know there were going to be planes dropping out of the sky and somebody walking around walking down bloody Bendigo having a sausage roll. It was it just went to insane insane levels. And we don't get to those levels unless they've actually tested the water, pushed through some legislation and kept reworking and rewording it. So their actions signal what they want to do, in in my opinion. Um, but look, to to your, your point is a fair point that uh, there was a lot of pushback against the Australia card. And probably in the last 35 years, that's been the... Uh, I think that's been the most courageous the Australian people have been. And since then, I think overall it's been pretty much a, a pathetic downhill run. Uh, I did want to also ask you to just elaborate a little bit more on the, the EU's... Is it? Did you say they were EDPR rules? Oh, the GDPR. Um... Yes, because I have actually had... I've, I've actually had heard reasonably complimentary... Um, comments about them and it sounds like something you'll probably be able to elaborate on for us if you don't mind yeah they're a bit of a pain in the ass for us now because um a lot of firms who do business in the eu were potentially captured by it and so um but that was more a structural thing gdpr or the general data protection i think it's regime or regulation or something like that is the antithesis of everything that every American company has been doing with privacy because the EU has basically said your private data is yours. You don't, mm. a company does not have a right to your personal data simply because you do business with them and they can't sell that to Cambridge Analytica. They can't sell it to a marketing firm. They can't do anything with it without your permission. And as a data citizen, you have rights to request a full record of what they keep on you. You have re um, rights to request deletion. You have rights to request privacy by design so that systems must be designed with the privacy of individuals in mind and, and um, with the primacy of an individual's privacy as their main design philosophy. So Google and Facebook, for example, are consistently paying fines in the EU because they don't meet those basic criteria because they, they haven't designed their systems with the, the end consumer's well-being and rights in mind. Um, hmm. So it's a massive step in that direction of saying, no, no, you as people... Your data about your lives is yours, and if we don't take a stand now, you're going to end up in a scenario where your data is basically a commodity that's traded with with little to no input from you as a result. So I think philosophically, it's a brilliant law, and I really hope we follow it. Yeah, look at that. I do like that side. I mean, it's again, you're not going to be surprised to hear that I also have. A, <laughs> I'm also not a big fan of the centralised bureaucracy of the EU. However, as I, I say about a lot of uh, bureaucracies, that doesn't mean that everything they do is um, is is bad for us. Uh, these these happen to be the sort of the laws that sound to me like they 
are going to actually be offering some protection. Aside, aside from all those pop-ups that they they sprouted, it's interesting that they, in the, 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 the EU as a bureaucracy, seems to have enough teeth to be able to enforce this on the, the giants like uh, like Google and Facebook. Now, I understand Australia is a, a comparatively a small uh, economy and power base compared to that. But it's interesting that uh, when Australia has tried to do something like that, it's it's, it's been basically the response from the, the big guys like, like Google, and that is, well, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Come and get us. Whereas with the EU, there does actually seem to be compliance. Now, do you think that's a size and money thing, or do you think that's something different? Is it is it cultural? Well, Are Google and that genuinely afraid? It's it's not. They don't do compliance. They get fined because they're consistently non-compliant, or they pull yeah, products sorry. and services um, out of the market. But um, <clears throat> I think the EU is doing a lot of very interesting stuff around um, making sure that. And this is how it always should be, that the provision of goods and services is the benefit of the customer at all times. And so I think Australia has always followed England in particular, but the EU more broadly in, in regulatory trends by about five years. So they do something five years later, we do it. Um, whether we'll have much luck enforcing or not, I don't know. I suspect because we're tre we're treading in the footsteps of a of another entity, it may be a little bit easier to get it across the line, but it, I mean, it really depends on what the legislation says and and how restrictive it is. They, there was a compromise and a bit of a back down from the tech giants on that. Um, the question of media, of news media. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't so. know. Is is the short answer? Yeah. Well, look, I suppose it's uh, wait and stay. Wait and wait and stay tuned. Uh, yeah. Look, it's to me. This is this is a. Uh, the, the topic we're talking uh, about here on the um, the law enforcement acting illegally, it's I think it's it's just another stain on the, uh, mm. the the whole the whole structure. And who knows who knows well, where it's, who knows where it's going to go. <laughs> well, sticking with the theme of government and oversight, we might move into our final topic of the day, which is the government's change tune regarding a federal ICAC. Uh, during the federal campaign, it was, we're going to have this legislated by the end of the year. It's going to be there. We're mm. just going to get it done. And now the government's, in my opinion, not so subtly pivoted to, <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll introduce it by the end of the year. And, oh, if it's not done, it's actually the crossbench's fault, which... I think we can agree, I'm hoping that we can, that when you hear from the government, it's the crossbench's fault for the next three years. What they're saying is it's the Greens' fault, um, just because of the green size on that crossbench at this point. I mean, it's we've talked about this before, haven't we? The the subtle flexing on, I think, Greens and, and a cop 90% of it, but Teal's too. Yeah, it's like, you guys, <clears throat> yes, you got rid of those pesky liberals for us, but you still can't be trusted. And you need to be reminded who Big Daddy Albo is. So hmm. when he said that, I thought he's been doing a good job of being a kind of very neutral prime minister and resetting the office after Scott Morrison's wild adventures. But he does things like this and you go, ah, there's the old factional warrior at play where it's just, I'm going to lean heavily on you to remind you who's the boss. The idea that the Greens who have been some points like singularly focused on a federal ICAC type entity could be the ones who would delay its implementation. Is it just trying to set up 
the carbon pricing 2009 debacle again, giving Labor a soft landing if, if they have to fall down on it, they can use the Greens to break their fall or, or, or what? No, no, because and this is kind of why I wanted to talk about it, because if you look at the last three governments separating the Gillard and the Rudd governments, you can actually see three different approaches from the Labor Party to the Senate. Um in a sense. And so we talk about Rudd in 2007 and something that plagued his government was that he didn't have a progressive Senate. Um, you know, so it was, he couldn't get a bunch of reforms through that Senate because he did need like family first and Xenophon, you know, like not necessarily ideologically aligned parties to pass his legislation. Um, there was even talk of a double dissolution at one point. Then right. we get to, we get to, 2010 uh, with Julie Gillard where she scrapes back in. She's got a minority government in the lower house, but crucially there was a progressive Senate. Uh, The Greens had had the balance of power. Labor and the Greens had the numbers in the Senate, meaning that really once legislation got through the quagmire of the lower house, it basically sailed past the Senate. Um, And that's why the Gillard government was actually quite a productive government. And when we get to now the Albanese government, you could be forgiven uh, for looking at the Senate and going, oh, well, congratulations, Albo, you've got a majority, but you also have a progressive Senate uh, because, you know, Greens plus Pocock makes the legislation pass and you've got yourself a progressive Senate there. He seems to really be taking the tax that he doesn't have a progressive Senate or should I say an aligned Senate. He's he's taking quite a combative approach to it, which I don't know is the correct approach in terms of securing outcomes for, like, the Australian people. But boy, does it set the party well up for 2025. Hmm. Well, that's an yeah, Sorry, go on. No, go, go with that. I was going to say, I, I can't see how he thinks he benefits from this because it's the kinds of people who think a federal ICAC is so desperately overdue are the ones he's at risk of hemorrhaging to the Greens anyway. So I don't, in general, I don't understand the flexing on those parties. So, you go sorry, on. the the tactic is one, in my opinion, that's becoming, that's falling into a pattern. Um, Albanese promises things, sets timeline for thing. And then uses megaphone diplomacy to basically shout down opposition to it or really kind of being like, oh, hang on. No, like we want to actually like, you know, amend this or work on this. Um, So he's setting the timeline. He's using the fact that he's the government to really project his side of like the legislation and then claims that it's somebody else's fault if if what he promised fails. because. You know, Albanese can come out and say, if we don't have an ICAC by the end of the year, it's the crossbench's fault. And then you've got the crossbench with their comparatively much smaller reach going, um, no, actually, we, we should really debate this. And it's it's not as easily communicable to the public. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's it's the same kind of thing that is said, in a sense, about the carbon price, you know, when they've... Um, uh, rehashed history and they're like oh you know it was fine it was perfect we just needed to vote to pass it and they're like no it was actually quite a flawed piece of legislation um and 
Yeah, well, I don't think he's really worried about hemorrhaging voters to the Greens in terms of a federal ICAC. What he's more worried about is keeping those Labour voters who flirted with the idea of voting Greens by going and having, in terms of a constant cycle of, oh, Greens delaying shit again. Greens, oh, God, being a block in the Senate. Oh, God damn it. Aren't they annoying? Do you think it's his sort of version of the you know, the, the constant um, accusations back and forth between uh, Labor and the Coalition about who's the, the better economic measure uh, manager? Yeah, similar, essentially. Um, it's really trying to pigeonhole, I think, the Greens in that regard as just being an angry, whiny party that can't actually do anything, so why would you waste your vote on them? Yeah. Yeah, and look, it's it is politics, and it it plays well. And um, just while we're pausing slightly here, we've got in the chat a comment from our regular listener Ben Along. The new federal ICAC will apparently have powers to investigate both criminal and non-criminal matters, and will also apparently be retrospective, which I know is something that Ben Along likes. Uh, that could perhaps include surveillance. I guess we will have to wait until next week to see the the detail. And then there's a reply by another person, uh, Church of Baby Yoda. I'm excited for it. One thing that they should include is the ability to investigate offences in the past, especially those who don't cooperate when they were caught doing dodgy stuff. And it looks like in the audience too, if I'm not um, mistaken by that icon, that could be Conor McGregor. Anyway, that's a, that's a call back to last, <laughs> to last week, so good day to you. Uh, I do think it is good politics uh, by, by Albo in this, but I think it is uh, a wasting of resources. Uh, it's a wasting of parliamentary resources. It's a wasting of the public's uh, time. It's their job to stay in, stay in power, but it's a bit frustrating when he's trying to you know, lawyer the definition of his his pledge. And as you said, mm-hmm. uh, you know, get out there, getting out the blaming everybody else except him for the delays. That's uh, it's not very inspiring to see to me. No, and the thing is, if 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 the government did actually want to have an ICAC this year, they could. They could. Yep. There's already been bills that have passed various houses of parliament. Simply take that, pass it, introduce it. It'll likely pass the Senate at this point. Um, and it could be set up just in time for the October budget, really, to you know include funds to for the running of it. Instead, though, they're not going to do that because it won't be 100% theirs. They, it really feels like they want to take ownership of any kind of policy that does pass and it's a really combative approach to politics that I don't think really serves the public well. Taking on your point, RD, you know, about how it's good politics, it's good politics, but it's bad outcomes, yep. really. Yep, yep, 100% agreed. And look, you, can you clarify this for, for me? I had it in my head and couldn't uh, remember. Was it the case that uh, the the Greens... It may have also been someone else, but that at least the Greens actually had a, a framework for ICAC legislation ready to go before the actual elections were held. Did I imagine that, or have I have I got no? That, uh... They did. Uh, both the Greens and Helen Haynes have uh, different ICAC legislation. They're both quite strong, and I think they both have worked on each other's. Um, 
the Greens, I know they actually introduced their legislation to the Senate because you can introduce legislation to the Senate. Uh, it doesn't have to go from the House to the Senate. You can start in the Senate and go to the House. Um, and it actually passed already. So it, it ended up just sitting on a dusty table in the House when, and Scott Morrison never introduced it. Um, I'm not entirely sure if there's actually a time limit on when these things need to be introduced or they're like, right. or they fall off the record. But yeah, there is there is a couple of models of ICACs that have already passed. The framework's already developed. The consultation's been done. And even Labor has said, in a way, like when people asked, oh, why are you going to go and rehash all this work that's been done just to have your name stamped on it? They're mm. like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't worry. We're just, we're going to, we're working with Helen Haynes and her model, and we're going to really kind of copy-paste a lot from that. So don't worry about it. But it's it's going to be our legislation, so, like, she can't get any credit. Yeah, okay. I thought it was interesting, too, and uh, with the, the, the previous story that we're talking about with the the ombudsman finding, uh, you know, the law enforcement acting illegally, there was a comment, uh, God, I can't remember who was the... I think it was the Attorney General, uh, had said, and he suggests that the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption may be relying on unlawfully obtained data in some of its inquiries with systems that don't adequately prove the, the warrants we use were, were proper. I thought that was that was an interesting thing that that an ICAC may actually be using uh, it may actually be using illegal um, illegal information, and it did make me think. There's this assumption with uh, with ICAC that suddenly it's going to solve all these problems of uh, corruption. It's going to expose the the broken system. You know, things are all just going to be peachy, and this may shock you, Apricot. But I'm a bit sceptical about that. Um, I don't believe that this is going to uh, fundamentally change the innate corruption of, of government. I don't think that Labor and the Coalition have it within them to put in place something that is going to hold them accountable. Do you think I'm just being too cynical there? Maybe. I think it'll definitely be a step in the right direction. Um, is it going to be everything we want? I've already kind of written it off that no, it won't be. Um, yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Ender? I, I, the, the thing I'd probably call out as, as critical here is that when we talk about corruption in Australia and sliding backwards on the transparency, international ratings and the like, it's always about the perception of corruption. So there's going to be an element where the perception and the reality of the corruption may not line up and we'll be expecting to see far more scalps collected by an ICAC than you than you actually get. So in New South Wales, when ICAC gets a scalp, it's someone who is an egregious um, sinner, you know, like an Eddie Obeid type who's, who's literally funneled millions into his own pocket. People who've done morally dubious things in office don't tend to get caught out. So I think the, the challenge is, is more going to be that... People will expect this to be the magic bullet, as Ardit said. It's not going to be a panacea for those problems. That doesn't mean it's ineffective. It just means that you've got layers of behaviour that, that don't pass the, the so-called pub test, of which corruption is one layer, but there, there are multiple ones. And I think we have to 
to be really careful not to ask federal ICAC or expect federal ICAC to be something it's not, so that when it's not putting Scott Morrison in jail and letting people throw rotten tomatoes at him, it's not deemed a failure as a result of that. You know, a little bit of kind of cautious um, progress on it. Hmm. Yeah, look, I suppose it's a number of these things. It's 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 wait and wait and see. I think people are going to be a bit dis disappointed. There's this there seems to be uh I know it's almost a, a cultish belief that as soon as ICAC comes in, uh, suddenly, and you might recognise this phrase, people will say the walls will be closing in on Scott Morrison. Uh, not a fan of the the, the bloke, but uh, so far it doesn't seem as though he's done anything egregiously on the legal sense that is going to capture him by an ICAC. And do you think if... Uh, if Morrison is not uh, presented as a, as a scalp, that a uh, large sector of the population is going to consider that the, the ICAC is a, is a failure simply because they want a witch to burn? Yes. Yep. Emphatically, yeah. yes. And, and as, again, it's not that I, I like Morrison either, um, but I think, <laughs> in a sense, <laughs> his complete lack of ambition of anything beyond... Scott Morrison was probably a saving grace for the country and that he couldn't, because he was so terrified of accountability, he couldn't actually go and do any anything to expand his power base in practice. Um, but yes, I think people want some sense of vindication that Morrison was bad for this, the democracy of this country and that ICAC would be the vehicle to deliver it. And while you could probably agree or disagree with the idea that he was bad for the democracy, the idea that he's not an ICAC scout I think shouldn't harm ICAC's reputation or it's or call into question its efficacy um, because I don't think it was ever designed to actually capture slightly dubious people. Uh, that's uh, the question and... I was going to ask too because you do you do understand uh, a lot more of the, the the legal things. It is you you think that's a reasonable comment to make that uh, as unsavoury as people might have found him, he hasn't done anything that you would say so far seems to put him under the uh, the ICAC spotlight. Was Is that accurate to say, do you reckon? I, I don't think he's done anything which legally would constitute corruption, noting that there is no centralised legal definition of corruption in the country. I mean, the, the broad one that the Attorney General uses is the misuse of entrusted power for personal gain. But um, it, it's hard to see that if you start looking at precedents of corruption at the state level, that someone like... Eddie O'Bead and, and Ian McDonald, the, the New South Wales ministers that went to jail for this, were doing everything they could to con people out of mining licences and funnel all the money back into companies owned by O'Bead and kickbacks to to um, McDonald. So that level of corruption is, is pretty open and shut. Morrison, I think, did nothing worse than, the, than most other politicians in terms of favour trading. It's just that he was so much more obvious about it and so unsubtle about it that right. it, it gave a stink off to it. Mm. The other thing I think to consider is, will this ICAC be retrospective? Maybe in terms of the legal sense. Uh, will it actually go back through the previous government's entrails? No, I don't think it will. Um, I think there will be a generally like non-spoken agreement amongst the major parties to like, no, ICAC functions from this date forward, even if it could technically go backwards. Yeah, I, I would agree um, with that. I think that 
the retrospectivity will come up if there's a, an, a matter for someone who's currently a member of parliament being investigated for a current affair and they'll look back for patterns of behaviour rather than, uh, I think Dreyfus was talking about a sort of 15-year window or something which would bring the previous Labor government into scope as well. Um, but I think that was optics. I don't, I don't see that the resourcing is going to be there to go through 15 years worth of legislation, policy, etc., and try and find reasons to have a couple of big profile cases so that it looks like it's got teeth. It's actually interesting that you mentioned that 15-year limit because while that would bring the previous Labor government into scope, uh, it would bring the Labor minority government where everything already was kind of under a microscope, uh, but it wouldn't bring the 2007 Labor government in. Correct. Hmm. Oh, dear. Uh, Before we wrap up for today, guys, I do want to ask you guys one simple question. Do we think an ICAC will be legislated this year? Mm, I am going to say no. I give it a, let's see, I'm going to give it a uh, 75 to 80% chance that it won't actually be legislated this this year now 20 percent's a, a a fair number but my money is on no mm, what about you ender well I'm, I'm going to be a contrarian as usual and say um maybe now i'll say yes because i think that the um the cost of not doing it's too great but whether or not that results in a good or bad outcome is a very different story Mm, fair enough. What about you? What's your opinion? I don't think it'll be legislated. It, I don't even actually give good odds on it being introduced. Um, mm. I, I feel like we'll do the October budget and I'll be like, oh, we've been busy with budget stuff and oh, oh no, we've run out of sitting days. We'll do it first thing next year. Um, yeah. And look, I suppose that that sort of reflects, I just noticed Ben Along's put another comment in here saying, I just hope they get the federal ICAC right and not rush it through. And this probably also harkens back to what we're saying. I don't really care if Morrison and Dutton go to jail this year or next year. So that that probably sums up a a lot of people's uh, opinions. Uh, But I think if they want to get it right, it's not going to happen this year. Hmm. Alrighty. Well, thank you for joining us today. It's been great fun. Um, if I'm bluntly honest, I'm actually probably going to go back to sleep. So- <laughs> oh, good on you. Good on you. All right. Well, you guys have you- a great day. Thanks for hosting us. We'll see you later, Apricot. See you later, Ender. Thanks both. <laughs>